I was praying this morning, I, you know, I just actually even felt the Lord say, Josh, you haven't got a TED Talk this morning. Um, I, haven't, I haven't got a TED Talk, and I haven't got a great sermon. Honestly, I feel almost ill-equipped for this morning, and I'll tell you why. Because over the last 48 to 24 hours, I've just been feeling something of God that I haven't felt for a long time. And it was confirmed and almost sort of solidified this morning in worship, which was so anointed, amen. That was so powerful. And so I am, this isn't going to be slick, but because we're family, I think we can just go somewhere together. Is, is that all right? Um, I, I do want to just dig in briefly to begin with the, the scripture that is pinning down this year, 2 Peter. So if you've got your Bibles, please open it. Let me just say something about this book. Put your hand up if you've read this book of 2 Peter start to finish yet. Amazing. If you haven't, do it this week. It won't take you more than 15, 20 minutes if you've got a bit of pace because it's, it's a short letter, right? This is Peter's last letter. It's the last thing that the supreme apostle Peter ever wrote, right? Peter who walked with Jesus. Peter who walked on water, right? Peter who witnessed all of Jesus' ministry. Peter who denied Jesus, Peter who confessed his love for Jesus and was restored and who was commissioned to build the church, right? Peter who had this huge conversion even in Acts where he realized the gospel isn't just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles, right? Peter who was constantly being molded, constantly being like rebuked by his brothers, constantly evolving. It's his last message to the church. And it's not written to one church. It's not like it's written to this one particular church. It's written to the church. It's written to all the churches in Asia Minor. This is the last thing that the Apostle Peter ever said. It's really worth reading, amen? And it's a deeply profound book. I'm going to do this really quick because it's just important. It's three chapters. The first chapter is Peter provoking the church of this is what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. That's the first chapter. I'm, I'm, I'm provoking you. This is what it looks like to walk out the ways of Christ. The second chapter is there are people at work trying to deceive you, trying to dumb you down, trying to make you a little distracted, a little less on fire and, and, and desiring and passion the gospel. Then the third chapter is Peter saying, he's coming back. Christ will return. He's coming back. And in light of all these things... What kind of people ought we to be? In light of all that I've said, how do you want to live out your life? Effectively, what Peter is saying is, Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? And I feel provoked to preach from the scripture in a new way because of this, he's moving. It's effectively Peter saying, he is, about, he is about to move. And he's talking from this kind of, you know, es um, eschatological kind of context. But he's saying, he's about to move. Are you ready? What kind of people are you going to be in anticipation that he is about to move? The great, uh, the great hymn writer, theologian, church father, Charles Wesley, the brother of John, said, he was asked, if you knew without a doubt that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, how would you live out today? And Charles Wesley said, I'd wake up at four in the morning. I'd make myself a bowl of porridge. I'd climb up on my horse. And I'd live out that day like I've lived out the last 10 years. I'm ready. You know how the apostles end their, end their letters when they say, they, they, they round it up with just, come, Lord Jesus. Jesus, come soon. Let's just pray that real quick. Jesus, we're sat here today in 2020 in this gymnasium with a simple prayer in our heart. 
would you come? Come soon. We're desperate for you, Jesus. We're lovesick for you, Jesus. We want to see you move in our midst again, Jesus. Amen. He says this in uh, so chapter 2. I'm, gonna, I'm basically going to bookend the, the scriptures around the core verse that we're, we're, we're digging into this year, right? So Peter says this in, uh, in verse 8. He says, do not overlook this one fact. This is verse 8 of chapter 2. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That's a little right hook. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. In his last letter to the church, he reaffirms our identity. Beloved, Peter was commissioned by Jesus and John, Jesus said to Peter, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus was there to, uh, Peter was there to witness the, uh, the, um, the, the moment that, that Jesus really stepped into who he was and he lived out of it continually from his ministry. It says that the heavens opened and an audible voice spoke and said, this is my son in whom I love and in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus would have reaffirmed that in his ministry over and over again so that Peter was convinced, this is where I move from. I move from a place of my belovedness. And I was reading that this morning, I thought, man, Peter, that's so powerful. I'm just going to remind you, church, I'm speaking this to you today. You're going to go about your day today. You're going to have your to-do lists. You're going to get things done. You're going to go out for lunch. You're going to see friends. You're going to see family. You're going to face problems. You're going to come up against things. You're going to untangle different messes. You're going to try and work through various issues. And all the while, underneath it all, there is this truth that you are the beloved. And it's subversive and it's deep and often we are so distracted, we don't pay attention. And Peter is just getting our attention back to it. You are the beloved. Beloved, be loved. God doesn't love you because he has to theologically. It's not just a statement, I'm loved by God. Right now, at whatever time it is, 10, 30, 11, whatever, whatever time, you are being loved by God. You are actually being loved by the Father right now. And Peter, this is really important. Peter is stating it before he goes any further. Beloved, do not overlook this one fact. Beloved, be loved. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years like one day. Verse 9. The Lord is not so slow to fulfill his promise as, comes count, as some count slowness. He is patient towards you, wishing that no one would perish, but that all should reach repentance. I read this with a new perspective this morning and praying about this morning. He's saying, beloved, God isn't slow like we count slowness. How do we count slowness? Wasting time, right? Late. He's not slow like you count slowness. He is being patient with you. There's people in the room, and I'm one of them, I'm preaching this message to myself, that in this context of God, would you move, even as you were singing that song, have a disposition towards the belief that God has been late and is slow to move. I want to encourage you with this this morning. Jesus is far more concerned, far more concerned with our sanctification, our development, our transformation into his likeness than we are with any measure we have conceived of success or what our life should look like. When we think we're being patient towards God, he is being patient towards us. When we think we're waiting around for God, it is in those moments he is moving already within our hearts so that we would be transformed into his likeness. Because this is, this, this is the crunch line of the gospel. That's what it's all about, that we would become more like Christ. There is nothing else. 
Paul says in Corinthians, he that knew no sin became our sin so that we could become his righteousness. That's justification. By his act and by our faith, we are justified. Our sanctification is the evidence of our justification. God is waiting for us to be fully formed in likeness towards Christ. What's already happened is being revealed in our daily lives. Peter is saying, don't think God is slow like you talk about slowness. He's being patient with you, beloved. You might feel like he was late to the count. He's never late. I've just been rereading The Hobbit, any Tolkien fans in the house. There's this amazing line when Gandalf rocks up. Do you remember this? And Bilbo says, Gandalf, you're late. And Gandalf says, Bilbo. A wizard is never late. He, he arrives exactly when he means to. But honestly, our desperation and our desire and our anticipation for God to move is often hindered and dumbed down with our perception that he's late and that he's slow. If only you would have come. If only you could have been here last time when I asked you. Some of you singing that song had ready and primed hearts for God to move in your life and move in this church. And some of you felt discouraged. And I want to minister to that this morning. Some of you felt, well, you were slow last time. You didn't make it here last time. So why would I expect you to do it again, right? There's a, I'm going to bounce around off my notes in the different scriptures because I just feel the freedom to do that. So you, you can just take notes of the scriptures I'm saying and go and read them when you get home. But in, um, in John 11, we hear the story of Jesus being called to the grave of Lazarus, right? You remember this story. It's just beautiful verbiage if you read it. Jesus is out and about, and a messenger comes and says, Jesus, the one that you love is sick. Your friend Lazarus is sick, the brother of Mary and Martha, right? Do you remember the story? And it's in the, in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus goes to the house of Mary and Martha and hangs out with them. These are deep friends of Jesus, and he gets the news, the one you love is sick, right? Jesus' response to hearing that his friend is sick is, I'm going to stay where I am for a few more days. And he's, he's about four days away from Bethany at the moment. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay where I am. And it's in that time Lazarus passes away. When Jesus begins walking to the grave, he finds out that Lazarus is dead. And he says to his disciples, he's fallen asleep and I'm going to go wake him up. And his disciples still, oh, they don't get it. They never get it, just like us. But Jesus, you don't understand. No, he's dead, dead. He's gone. And Jesus stops and he says, this is so provocative. He says, I'm glad that he's dead. Because today you're going to bear witness to the fact that I am the resurrection and the life. What you saw as the end of your story was my opportunity to reveal who I really am. I could have got there a few days ago, and your conclusion of me would have stayed the same. It's about to go through the roof now. And what happens next is he gets to Bethany, and we, we hear this really, really interesting uh, verse. It says, when Jesus arrived, Mary and Martha were both alerted. It says, Martha ran out to meet Jesus. But it says Mary stayed seated at home. If you remember, when Jesus last hung out with Mary and Martha... It was the other way around in the sense Mary was at the feet of Jesus. Do you remember the story? And Martha was in the kitchen. And Jesus said, oh, Martha, you're busy. You're busy and distracted. But your sister is aware of the one thing, the main thing. That's me. It's as if Martha had learned her lesson. 
As soon as she heard Jesus was in town, she left what she was doing and ran to him. She left her pain and her disappointment, her grief of her brother being in the grave for four days to run and meet Jesus. And her sister, Mary, stayed where she was. I wonder if you can bear witness to that posture in your heart. Mary and Martha are not personality types, they're heart states. You know, I always hear people say, well, I'm, I'm a bit more of a Mary or a bit more of a Martha. It, 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 this isn't about responders or doers in life language. It's not about that. This is about your heart posture. Are you positioned in a, in, in, in a state of your life and your, your, your pursuit of Christ? Are you positioned to receive him? Or are you slowly, and this is true for so many of us, are you slowly getting more and more calloused over time? Martha runs up to Jesus, and her first reaction isn't one that is full of faith. She doesn't say, oh, the resurrection and the life is here. She says, Jesus, why didn't you come? If you had just been here earlier, my brother would have lived. You're late, right? And they have this back and forth to which Jesus says, Martha, you're about to witness who I really am. Your brother will rise. And she says, no, Jesus, I know. He'll rise again in the day of resurrection. Jewish theology, right? The day of resurrection is coming. And he says, no, this is happening now. She says this to him. He's gone. It's over. I'm devastated. But say the word, and even now, he will rise. God will hear you. Could you just say even now, church? Even now. Say the word, and even now, he will rise again, right? This is really interesting. Martha knew her theology as a Jew. She knew that there was a day of resurrection coming. I just want to remind us, right? The word became flesh. Jesus is incarnational theology. Jesus is what theology looks like. We have to submit our theology to the person of Jesus. It says in Colossians 1.13, the image of the invisible God is made known in Christ Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. We often create theology around our experience and around our pain. We do that. We've seen it so many times. We have to keep submitting our theology to Jesus. Otherwise, the song that you sung this morning won't mean anything to you. Bodies are still being raised. Giants are still being, I haven't seen that. But that's the image of the invisible God revealed in Jesus. And he's still moving, so it means that it's still true. And Martha had this moment where her theology, well, he'll rise again at the day, the, the day of resurrection, was confronted with the resurrection himself. I just want to pray something, right? I'm going to just do ministry on route. You can put it out your hands. Father, I just pray, Lord, into the hearts of every single person standing here, Lord, sitting here, where we have made theology wrapped around our experiences, Father, that have really been indebted to disappointment. Lord, may you shatter them with the incarnational truth of who you are. Lord, we thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. Lord, we thank you that you bring resurrection wherever you are in Jesus' name. Beloved, do not count slowness towards God like you count slowness in all your different contexts. He's not late. He's arriving exactly when he means to. Could it be that you're four, five, six, seven days, eight months, nine years past a prayer that you had desired to be fulfilled in a certain way? And Jesus is just meandering his way in a town. And when you hear he's here, will you be seated?
or will you run out to meet him? I honestly believe, and I've, I've never preached this before. I've never preached from this scripture like this before. I honestly believe that this is, this is where St. Charles is right now. It, or everything, your future depends on the posture of your heart right now. Do you actually believe that there's a move? Do you actually believe that when Jesus walks in a town, he's here to change something? Why wouldn't Mary have got up? She was so in, much in pain. But we know how the story ends. They gather together, right? Jesus knows what he's going to do, but he gets to the tomb. He sees Martha. He sees Mary. He sees all the town weeping and crying, and it says he was moved and deeply troubled. Alas, God is with us in our pain. He weeps with us. I don't know if that song was prophetic that you were singing out, but you, you wipe away our tears. Oh, so beautiful. He is weeping with you. There isn't a disappointment that you felt that Christ hasn't embodied himself. He that knew no sin became our sin. He became everything that this troubled world has ever offered us in terms of affliction. He has embodied it. There is no part of the human experience that God himself hasn't inhabited. As far as the point is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can break down in front of Jesus. You can let it all out like Martha did. But your heart just has to be postured to this just might not be the end. Amen. So there's an even now when it comes to the move of God, right? There's an even now I still believe. I'll be, I'll be really honest with you. I, I prayed that prayer a number of times in my life. I prayed it two years ago during the, during the last night of my friend's life. She was 27 years old on her bed, deathbed, having a four-year battle with cancer. I won't go into all the details. But my wife and I stayed up all night singing this song that we wrote in a moment. And it just goes, even now, even now, even now, even now. Even now, even now, we believe. And we just kept singing it over and over and over because what we realized was happening was God was doing a move in our hearts. There was a sanctification process happening in that moment. We didn't get the answer that we wanted, but that prayer has molded and shaped the posture of our heart to bear witness to stuff that God has done and continues to do that we would have missed if we had closed it, right? If we had denied that he is the God of even now, I wouldn't be standing up here today. I would be in critical condition spiritually, deeply disappointed, right? Even now. There's, um, there's, another, there's another chapter that I just want to really look at. So when we're waiting for God, right, and we're beginning to count God as being slow, can we hold an even now posture, right? There's another posture I just want to minister to you guys today that, again, I think is so important for this house at this time, right? And it's even if. There's even now and there's even if, right? So you can, you can dig into the scriptures if you want fully later. Like John 11, I'm just going to go through this really quick. But it's in uh, Daniel. You guys know this story well. But I believe that this is a, a word for you guys right now. You know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, you, you, you've heard the story about Nebuchadnezzar calling the area to worship these gods made of gold, Right? You heard the story that whenever the trumpet was sounded, people would have to fall on their face and worship. And you heard about these three Hebrew men who said, no, <laughs> we're not going to do that. And Nebuchadnezzar caused them, called them into their presence and, and, and his presence and basically said to them, look, we can make all this go away right now. We can sort this out right now. All you need to do is get on your knees when that trumpet sounds. That is it. And you are good. Because if you don't, the fire is heating up. 
seven times stronger than it would normally. And it's getting hot in here. What do you want to do? And they said, we're not, we're not bowing. We're not, we're not getting on our knees. Because the Lord will deliver us. It says this in Daniel chapter 3. It says, but even if he doesn't, we're still not bowing down. We're still not getting on our knees. They were Hebrew men in a culture that wasn't Hebrew. They knew their story. They knew the journey of their faith. They knew that there was a time where a patriarch of their tradition, Moses, had come down from the mountain. And the people had been worshiping a golden calf. Right? They knew what happened when you made God on your terms. They knew what it looked like when you fashioned God in your image. They knew how God responded. This wasn't new for them. They knew that the king was making God in his terms, on his terms, in his image. Blaise Pascal, the theologian, said, God made man in his image, and then man returned the favor, right? Nebuchadnezzar was making God in his own image, on his terms. And these three Hebrew men said, we would rather die than have God defined by man. We don't know what he's going to do. We believe he's going to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we would rather stand under God than understand God like you do. We would rather submit and commit to the image of God as he has revealed himself to be than God as you have revealed him to be. We'll die for that. They go into the fire. The guards die taking them to the fire because it's so hot, right? They're in the fire, these three men. And then the king calls out. He says, wasn't there three men in there bound? Bound, right? Bound. I can see four men, and it says moving around, walking about, having a chit-chat. I was reading that just this morning in prayer. Lord, what are you saying to the church today, myself included? And he said this to me, son, if you seek to see me on your terms, you will never meet me in the fire. If you want to define me by your terms and by your standards and through your issues and your problems and your experiences and your past, you will never meet me in the fire. I would go as so far to say, <laughs> I would go so far to say, that we, we fall into one of the most critical forms of disobedience when we develop a certainty towards God. When we develop a, a posture that says, this is exactly who you are and what you're going to do every time. I'm going to unpack this a little bit. There's a, there's a couple of people that I'm discipling at the moment. And something I'm walking through with a few of them is this notion. God told me to do this. Then I did it and it didn't work out. I'm mad at God. And that exists in us a lot, Right? And I just want to provoke you to the thought that sometimes we make decisions. We make decisions, and after the fact, we say that God told us to make them. Right? We just, we just put it on this in our Christian language. It's Christianese. We do it all the time. And then we get disappointed, and then we start saying that God was the one that led us astray, or God was the one that hurt us. You might not agree, but I think if you search your heart, you'll find a place where you might have done that, right? It's one thing. It's one thing to contend and say, this is exactly what God said, and this is what exactly he's going to do every time, all the time. This is exactly what the move's going to look like. 
It's another thing to have such a posture of obedience and Christ-like nature to say, I believe he's going to move like this, like I believe he said he would. But even if he doesn't, he's still God and I'm still for him. That's a whole nother level of maturity. To say, even if he doesn't move like I expected him to, I'm not taking him off the throne of my life. I'm not going to do that. It says in Proverbs, God conceals a matter. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter because it's the glory of kings to search out. There is something of Jesus that, that is hidden in the ways that we would like him to be revealed so we can make certainty out of everything that would work in our favor on our terms. Let me tell you something about Jesus which is absolutely certain. 100%. He's the image of the invisible God, and he reveals that God is good, God is kind, God is trustworthy. Just the other day, I was, uh, was rereading uh, Narnia. My wife and I are rereading Narnia because my, my, uh, my mom read it to me when I was a little boy. We got a little, little baby on the way, and I'm getting ready to, to, read it, to read it to her. Let me tell you this. I, I was sat in the, this came to mind because I was sat in the, in the Reynolds living room this morning, and um, you've got this amazing picture of a lion. On the, on, the, on the wall, and I was just looking at this lion, and it just, it brought this back. Let me find this if I wrote this down. Give me one second, my friends. All right, this is straight out of, out of the line, the witch in the wardrobe. This is Susan, right? She's one of the children. She's talking to these beavers, if this didn't sound weird enough already. Um, <laughs> we're a charismatic church. I can get away with it. Uh, she says this. The, the beaver says, Aslan is a lion. Aslan is a lion. The lion, he's the great lion. Susan goes, ooh, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And the beaver said, safe? Who said anything about him being safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. But he's good, and he's the king. <sighs> There's something in our hearts, right, that is so mature where we can get to this point where we say, I don't know what he's going to do next. I don't know what he's going to, I believe he's going to move, but I don't know what he's going to do next. And I am decided to forsake my certainty to perceive the new thing that he is doing. Isaiah 43, 19, behold, I am doing a new thing, says the Lord. Do you not? Perceive it. It springs forth like a way in the desert, like rivers in a dry land. Do you not perceive it? So for this church right now, in your hearts, where you feel like you're waiting, where you feel like you're delayed, where you feel like God hasn't come through, even now, even now, even now, he's still moving. Even now, he's still coming, right? And then... And even if it doesn't happen, even if it doesn't happen the way I intended it to, I can still, I can still trust. The reason I can still trust is because I'm going to get a new revelation of who he is. I'm going to get a new understanding of who he is. And it's not even going to be on my terms. Losing my best friend was the hardest thing I've been through. Right? If I could rewrite it on my terms, I would rewrite it so differently. But I cannot deny the fact that through pain, through grief, and through suffering, I have seen something of the Father I would have never seen before. 
It says in Hebrews, right, that our sanctification is the revelation of this one act of justification. There is nothing ever wasted with Christ Jesus. Never wasted. He's constantly walking. He's constantly moving. Let me read you this. Do you mind me just jumping around all these scriptures? I know it's not um, always that easy to follow, but I feel like I've just got to release some scriptures out for you to dig into. Um, this is another one in, uh, in John 3. Let me pull this up. John 3.1. Let me just read this real quick. This is, Dan, how much time have I got? All right. There's, um, this is a conversation between Jesus and uh, Nicodemus. It's going to say Hezekiah. No. <laughs> Between Nicodemus, a ruler, a teacher, a, 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 a scholar of the law, right? And having this conversation about what it means to be born again. This is the guy who knows the Torah. He knows spiritual formation as the Jews knew it incredibly well. And uh, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Check this out, verse 8. He says this, Nicodemus, you, right, you have this understanding of all these things you've grown up with through the Torah, through the scriptures. You have this full understanding. I'm about to blow it all out of the water right now. Check this out. He goes, Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, right? You hear the wind blow, you hear the sound, but you don't know where it's going or where it comes from. He says this, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. To follow the Spirit, to be born of the Spirit, is to relinquish, let go of, I know where he's going. I know what he's doing. This is what it will look like. This is how we can wrap up our understanding and make sense of what just happened. You can't do that if you're born of the Spirit. Jesus compares him to wind. You can't trace the wind. It just moves. And if God is going to move here, which I believe he is, and I believe he's already moving here, you have to, we have to let go of our terms and conditions, right? And as a result, we have to let go of the way the past has defined who God is in the present and who we perceive him to be in the future. Behold, I'm doing a new thing, says the Lord. And he wants to heal our hearts and create space to actually land. Amen? Let me just... Uh, let me just run just to the end of um, 2 Peter, right? So he's talked about be, don't be patient because God is being patient with you. Don't count slowness like, God is count, like, you, like you count slowness. That is not how God, uh, God, God is anticipating his move. It's not like you are. He, he doesn't wish that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And at the end of that chapter, towards the end, he says this. He goes, all of these things are to be dissolved. Since all of these things are going to be dissolved, everything that we know, everything that we can see as it is, what sort of people will you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Fee, would you be, can we jump back up there with a band? And we'll, we'll just go back into that song. I'm going to land here. Um, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire. The heavens being not heaven like we think heaven up there, the skies, the earth, everything. Heaven will be dissolved. Heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Check this out. Peter says this. In light of all these things, what kind of people should you be? Right? And he effectively answers it. He says, people that are waiting for 
and hastening the coming of God. One last point to this sermon, right? The word he uses when he says hastening is a Greek word, pronounces something to the effect of, it's amazing, stupendios, stupendios, right? It has a dualistic meaning. One is to speed up, right? To speed up. The second is to deeply desire. You can go check that out in a concordance later. To wait for, to deeply wait for, to speed up, to deeply desire. Peter is saying, if you want God to move, if you want him to come back, which we all do in one way or another, we want his return. He's saying our lives, our devotion, our desperation, our anticipation, our perseverance, our passion, our prayer life, our seeking of God actually speeds it up. The way that you relate to God and your devotion of God does everybody else here a favor. Your life is interwoven into the global church. As you seek God, as you pray for Him to come, as you ask to meet Him, as you repent, as you receive His grace, you hasten His return. The best thing this church could do right now is develop deeper and deeper and deeper intimacy with Christ. That is the best thing that you can do. It will help all of us out. It will help us out in England. You'll hasten His return in England. Would you do that for us? Would you deeply seek his heart for us? Would you press in all the more? And let me just two things for pressing in. Even now and even if, right? Even now and even if. There is no principle that's going to put me off seeking God because he can still come even now. And even if, I'll meet him in the fire. Let's stand all pray for you.